Good morning once again. Today we are in the second sermon of our new series called The Blessing. Our emphasis this year is on loving our neighbors. And so last week we started this new look at the book of Genesis and the first generations of God's family. And we're looking at them because last week we talked about how they are the first people that God really called to love their neighbors. God called Abraham out and he said, go to Canaan and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless others through you. You're going to be a blessing to others. The people who bless you and join with you, they will become blessings. And through this sharing of the blessing, the whole world is going to be blessed. The image that we used was that God blessed Abraham, but he wanted him to be a river, not a lake. And the same is true of all of us. And so what we're doing now is we're looking through the stories of Abraham and the first few generations of God's people, because like all of the first people to do something, they make all the most obvious mistakes because no one's ever made them before. And so it gives us stories to learn from and examples of what to follow in some cases and in other cases, what not to follow. So today in our first story, right out of the gate, Abraham's first attempt to love his neighbors, we are going to learn how not to love your neighbors. Do not do like Abraham does in this story. I'm going to start by reading this first initial passage or this, this uh, first story that we're telling. This is the first time Abraham actually does anything, really, in the Bible. And we're going to see how he did. So remember that God has told him to go to Canaan so that he can bless him. The goal is for Abraham to be in Canaan, following God's instructions and sharing his blessing and trusting that God will protect him. So chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know, there you, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife, and everything he had. All right, so Abram does not do very well in this story. He makes a variety of mistakes, and we are going to learn from them. And the first mistake he makes is right there in the first verse. It says there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live because, for a while because the famine was severe. Now, so right out of the gate, what did God say? Go to Canaan. And in Canaan, so that he could bless the region of Canaan. He wanted Abram to be there to do the mission. And here's the thing about Canaan, though. Canaan is not super well irrigated. You'll notice as you read the stories about the patriarchs that they're constantly digging wells and fighting over wells and stuff. They mainly deal with groundwater, which is fed by rainwater. And the thing about that is you have to trust there's going to be enough rain to fill the reservoirs and to uh, provide enough water for you to water your flocks and to grow 
crops, right? You have to trust in rain. My father-in-law is a farmer in central Illinois where they do rain farming, and he is fond of saying that it takes more faith to be a farmer than to be a pastor. And I, I think that's fair, especially in a place where you're farming and you're reliant on the rain. So, Abraham, so God calls Abraham to a place that has that kind of ecosystem, where you, if you're going to be successful in farming, the weather's got to be on your side. And I, I personally, this is just my, my inkling, that he did that intentionally. Like, that might be part of the reason why he picked Canaan. We, God doesn't, just, doesn't explain to us why he picked Canaan. I think that might have been part of it. You've got to trust God if you're going to make a go of it in Canaan. Because you know where it's a lot easier to make a go of it? In Egypt. Because Egypt has the Nile. Egypt is functionally irrigated. It doesn't matter how much rain you get, as long as you just dig trenches off the Nile, and you're going to get all that rain that fell in the rainforests of Central Africa that's running down the slopes, right? So the first time Abraham starts to get a bit skittish about whether there's going to be enough rain, he says, all right, I'm out. I hear there's water in Egypt, which is a lot like what it was like back home. He grew up in Mesopotamia where they had the Euphrates, and it was also, they use irrigation over there. Like, all right, I'm, I don't think, the, I'm not sure I like this whole waiting for the rain thing. I'm going to go where it's irrigating. It's one of the things I learned, I, I think, I, so my last job as a pastor was in a place where they irrigate. And if you're irrigating, it doesn't take more faith to be a farmer. It just takes a lot more work. But you just get to trust that the water's there because you have some sense of control, right? So Abraham goes to a place where he has some sense of control because he doesn't really trust God to fulfill the promises that he made. See, the funny thing, this is, for Abraham, I think I mentioned this last week, this is essentially like a prequel. You know when you watch a prequel and it takes some of the suspense out of it because you know some of the, at least some of the people are going to live because they were played by Harrison Ford in the 70s in the sequel, so you know they're not going to die, Right? That's how it should be for Abraham. He knows, he's guaranteed, there's a spoiler, he's going to live at least long enough to have a son. Otherwise, God's promise doesn't happen. And yet, he is still afraid that he might starve to death in Canaan. So Abraham let fear overcome his trust in God's promises. That was problem number one. He should never have been in Egypt in the first place. But that initial mistake, it tells us something about his character, and it helps inform the decisions that he makes through the rest of the story. Because then he has this weird discussion with his 75-year-old wife where he says, you are so beautiful that they're going to want to kill me so that they can marry you. He says, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Now, this might seem a bit silly to us because this is a 100-year-old man talking to his 75-year-old wife. It's partly because our culture, our standards of beauty are much more based on youth than other cultures normally have had. But that's not actually the silly part about this. The silly part about Abram's reaction is he probably has never met an Egyptian. He certainly has never been to Egypt. He has no actual reason to think that the Egyptians are more likely than anyone else to kill him to steal his wife. Right? He's been, he's been in Babylon. He's been in, I don't actually know, you know, there's Babylon and, no, sorry for you guys, it's Babylon, and there's Canaan, and you have to go over. He's been through this whole arc, and I forget what this area is called. He's been through all of that, never worried about his wife getting stolen. But he's going to go to Egypt. Something about the Egyptians gets him afraid. It's because what's happening here is that Abraham, his fear made him assume the worst about his neighbors. This is not an informed fear. 
There's no justification that we have for this. It's simply he is afraid because his wife is very desirable, and as her husband, he is an immovable obstacle. As long as she's married, she can't marry someone else. So if they really want his wife, they're going to have to kill him. And so he assumes, even though it's never been a problem before, he assumes that the Egyptians are going to make a fuss and are willing to kill him. Now, do any of us do something like this where we make, you know, when we're afraid or we're in a, not necessarily constantly afraid, but we're, we have a mentality of danger out there that we could be, you know, our, our lives could be destroyed or taken or messed with or we're, we're, we have that fear, it makes us assume the worst about the people around us. Raise your hand if you do that. Keep your hand down if you lie. <laughs> right? That's... That's the human condition. That's what we do, right? Okay, I'm going to give you a test. This is going to be a bit risky, um, but if you, you know, maybe want to put your fingers on your wrist, maybe kind of track your pulse, I'm going to imagine that the new neighbors move in and they put out some yard signs. Just going to track your pulse as I show you some possibilities of what yard signs they might put out and how that might make you feel. You've never met these people before, but the first thing they do, they, they empty the U-Haul and then they put out one of these. Or... They put out one of these, or one of these, or one of these, or one of these, or one of these. Chances are that for each of you, one of those carried some kind of, did something to make your pulse go, or either one of those signs offended you, or the fact that one of those signs might offend someone else offended you, right? Or maybe you're like me and you just, your, your pulse goes up as soon as you realize you have a neighbor who wants to put political opinions on signs in their yards. Like that just, that I just, I get nervous as soon as, you know. But what kind of assumptions do we sometimes put on people because of the signs they put in their yards? Or the kinds of cars they drive? Or things like that. I, like how often does someone move into your neighborhood and you think, oh man, I didn't realize we were going to get one of those kind of people. And you're afraid about, there goes the neighborhood, I believe is the common phrase. And we fill in the details out of our ignorance. How often do we fill in the details in a positive way? Now, you might have done that if, you, if they put up the sign that you agreed with, right? Then you might assume good things about them, even though they could be terrible people. Or if they put up the sign you didn't agree with, you assume horrible things about them. But usually, as we have a fear mindset, we fill in the details with the worst possible assumptions. Right? It's just what we think about people that we don't know. And usually when we do that, then we make the next mistake, which is the same thing that Abraham does, because then Abraham acts on that fearful assumption and he acts on, he's made a fearful assumption as he has a mind state of fear where he doesn't trust God to protect him. And so he, he has to take steps to protect himself because he doesn't trust God. And so these two, these two instances of fear force him into a deeper level of fear. He says, tell them you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So now, this is a lie. Right? He is lying to save his own skin. Although, that's not the first reason he gives for lying. Right? He actually says, let's say you're my sister so that I will benefit from your beauty. 
also I'll, I'll live. Because the idea is if he's her brother and she's traveling with him, then instead of being an obstacle to his beautiful wife, he is now the gatekeeper, right? He's the one that you have to bribe so you can marry his sister. Now, the, hopefully, hopefully the best, I mean, this is not a good thing for him to have done. He's lying. He's also risk, you know, he's, he's betraying his wife and his wedding vows and, and his whole relationship with his wife. But maybe the best possible thing out of this would be that he's hoping that as the gatekeeper, he can like play people off each other and make sure nobody ever actually marries her. So, because now he doesn't, they don't have to kill him to marry her. They just have to, they just have to bribe him and he can play them off and maybe hold everybody back. Except there's one guy in Egypt that you cannot hold back. Right? There's one suitor in Egypt that you cannot refuse. And Sarah just so happens to catch his eye. So, so Abraham, he compromised his integrity in order to protect himself by lying and by failing, utterly failing as a husband. Just absolute, utterly failing as a husband. By, he, I, it looks to me like a betrayal. He has taken on the responsibility of protecting her in a male-dominated world, and he's failing at that. He's using her to protect him and, and putting her at risk because he's going to get the money. But if, say, Pharaoh notices her, then Pharaoh, uh, is, uh, she's going to get taken into his palace. And what that means is he married her with everything that involves. She has now been married to Pharaoh. So Sarah pays the cost, Abraham reaps the rewards. That on itself is horrible. Okay? And that's the worst thing about it. Now, as we read the story of the Bible and the, plot, the story of the blessing, there's another level why this, in, this happening to Abraham and Sarah is especially bad. Because God said he would make Abraham and his wife into a great nation, and now he's married off his wife to Pharaoh. So not only has he sold out his integrity, and not only has he sold out his wife, he's also sold out God's plan. Because now God, he, he, now he, is not, he doesn't have a wife to make a nation with. He doesn't have the wife that God told him he would make the nation with. So not only has he sold out his, his integrity, he sold out his wife, he, he has also endangered God's plan to protect himself. This is all done by a person who was told by God that he would be blessed and protected, right? Now, obviously, Abraham has been, done some pretty bad things, but one of the puzzling things about this question is who gets punished? Who, does this, who gets punished in this story? Pharaoh. Does that seem fair? Well, because it says the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Now, that doesn't seem fair, but that's because this is not actually a punishment. God is not punishing Abraham or punishing Pharaoh. God is protecting the plan. Here's the thing. Abraham has not done his job of protecting his wife. Abraham has not done his job of holding on to his integrity. He is willing to sell out God's plan. But as long as Abraham and Sarah are separated in this way, God's plan can't move forward. So if Abraham is not going to stand up for Sarah, and if Abraham is not going to protect the plan, God's going to. So the point here isn't that God is punishing Pharaoh. The point is that God is intervening to stop Pharaoh because Abraham won't. Abraham will not come clean, will not tell the truth, will not risk his neck, 
in order to, to be faithful to God's plan. So God steps in and sends these punishments in order to stop this threat to the plan, to the blessing. So what actually ends up happening when Abraham's goal is to, uh, Abraham's job is to bring a blessing, but when he doesn't trust the blessing, he doesn't live in the blessing, what ends up happening is his sin brings a curse on his neighbors. He has now done the opposite of what he was supposed to do. Now the, the Egyptians are cursed because they know Abraham. Because Abraham is actually working against God's plan. Needless to say, we don't, we don't actually know how Pharaoh found out the source of this plague, the source of, this, um, of God's action, the reason for it, but somehow he finds out, and Pharaoh is not very happy. And it's interesting, I, I guess this isn't explicitly written in here, but it seems to me when you listen to his reaction, he says, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be your wife? What I hear in there is, I wouldn't have stolen your wife. I wouldn't have taken her if I had known she was your wife, which means that Abraham's basic premise for all of this was wrong. There's no reason for him to think that there was any danger from the Egyptians. And it turns out the Pharaoh would never have actually done that. How often do we find out much later that the assumptions we made about people were dead wrong? It's partly because we don't believe that people can disagree with things we believe very strongly and still be good people. turns out they can There are people who disagree with me on fundamental things and are actually really good Christians and better than me in many ways. Maybe all of them, all of the ways. But we just, we fill that in with a negative. And I, I, okay, so I went to seminary at Sioux Falls Seminary. It's a North American Baptist school. And there were about a third of the people there were Baptists and about a third of the people there were Methodists and about a third of them were Lutherans. And I went in there with some really strong prejudices about people from mainline traditions who don't believe the Bible and don't believe Jesus and aren't real Christians. And I was, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed by their devotion to God. I was embarrassed to have felt that when I saw their devotion to God and their knowledge of the Bible and their faithfulness. And and so many of those people who just cut against every assumption that I made about those kinds of people. That was a really hard hit to take and to process. And it caused me to, to challenge my tendency to fill in the gaps with the negative. Because it turns out, even someone like Pharaoh may respect marriage and not murder to steal wives. And maybe, even if he was that kind of person, maybe God can be trusted to protect us. But turns out it's too late now, right? Because Pharaoh's, at this point, the relationship is pretty much broken. Like Pharaoh and Abraham are not going to get back on good terms. Abraham, or Pharaoh says, now take your wife, take her and go, get out of here, leave. And so at, this relationship is broken, And the interesting thing is, this should affect the way we read the biblical story, because the Egyptians are going to be bad guys for the rest of the Bible, right? But how did that, who actually caused the initial problem between them? Who who started this? It's really easy down the line to say, look, all those people are so horrible, look at all the bad things they've done, and you forget, oh yeah, I started that one. That one was my fault. Because I didn't trust God and I acted out of fear and I did. Casey and I had one of those yesterday where she and I had to sit down and sort things out and I had to confess, yeah, actually, I started that one. I guess I didn't react properly because I felt like I was being criticized when actually I just 
I just made a bad decision. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, it's amazing how often we lose track of those, where those, those problems start. But all of this, this, this breakdown of Abraham's mission to bless his neighbors, it started because Abraham was motivated by fear. He didn't trust God. He didn't trust the blessing. And that fear just kept spiraling. So that he, he initially didn't trust God, and so then he started imagining dangers, and then he started acting in ways that lost integrity, and, he started, and that caused curses to the people around him, and things got worse and worse until finally God had to sort it out, and he leaves, and relationship is broken. Don't do that. Don't be like Abraham. I'll give you someone you should be like, because I don't want to end it on that note. Be like Ananias. I'm going to read you a story of some fearless neighboring. We're going to jump to the other end of the Bible. This is going to be in the days of the early church. And there's a, this guy named Saul who's a very passionate uh, uh, Pharisee who's been going around persecuting Christians and putting them in jail. And he's, he's traveling around arresting Christians. It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The first thing I want you to recognize about Ananias is that Ananias knew the risks of going to his neighbor. The difference between Ananias and Abraham is not that Ananias was starry-eyed and foolish and wasn't aware of why a Christian might not want to go to Saul. He knows exactly why a Christian would not want to go to Saul. In fact, he is one of the people Saul went there to get. Right? He, his name is on Saul's list. And so Ananias, that's why he objects to God himself. He says, hold on, that guy is here to arrest me. So he is completely aware of the dangers. And also, he has a better reason for believing in those dangers than Abraham did. Right? This is not imagined. This is not the, hey, there's a new guy in town, and I'm going to assume new guys want to persecute the church. This is, no, no, Saul from Tarsus, we know his name, we know what he's doing. Like, this is an informed fear, right? So he knew the risks, but the difference is Ananias didn't receive a direct blessing from God, right? He received a command, but there's nowhere in there when he talks with God where God says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to, bless, you know, he doesn't get that. God just says, Go. But Ananias trusted that Jesus was working ahead of him. God does say, he's there praying, and I'm going to work through him. I've talked, you know, he's, he, God tells, or Jesus tells Ananias that he's sorting it out. He doesn't give him a guarantee of success. He just says, I've, I've sorted it out. But Ananias actually trusts that when he gets to talk to Saul, Jesus will have already been there. 
Jesus will have already done something, that Saul will be in a different state than he otherwise had been when he was persecuting all those Christians. Abraham could have expected the same thing, that if Pharaoh was inclined to kill people who were married to women he wanted, that God would be ahead of him to either change Pharaoh's heart or to protect him, right? He should have assumed, because his life is going to prove it, that God was ahead of him in all the dangers that might come up. But he didn't. He tried to fix them himself out of fear that God wouldn't actually show up. Now, it's possible that Abraham doesn't actually realize that God is everywhere. Abraham might think he's only in Canaan at this point. Either way, he's wrong. Ananias actually trusts that Jesus was working ahead of him. And as a result, Ananias loved his neighbor in spite of his neighbor's reputation, in spite of the fears about who his neighbor is and what his neighbor might do. He follows the instructions of God to go to his neighbor. That's what neighboring is supposed to look like. Now, I'm not talking about... Let's see, what am I talking about? What I'm saying... It is so easy. I guess what I'm, okay, so one of the books that I've been reading talks about a woman who, the woman who wrote it talks about having, you know, finding out that the neighbor she's been loving has a meth house um, when the cops show up. I'm, you know, there are legitimate physical dangers and I'm not trying to encourage you to walk into, but those are, those are very, very slim minority of cases, right? Usually what we're afraid of is I'm not comfortable talking to strangers. Or I assume that new people don't want to hear about Jesus. Or I assume that it's going to get laughed at or rejected. That's the kind of fear that we normally are stopped by. And if we're going to love our neighbors, what we need to know, first of all, is that fear is our biggest obstacle to loving our neighbors. It is the number one problem that you're going to have if you're going to try and love your neighbors. It is the number one problem that Abraham has. He does this exact same thing again. Did you know that? With a different king named Abimelech. The exact same thing. And then Isaac, his son, does the exact same thing too. With that, with that other king's son. They don't learn easily. And they do. Abraham continually makes this kind of mistake because fear is the biggest thing that holds us back. And it's fear, ultimately, we don't think of it this way, but I want you to think of it this way, that when fear holds us back, it is fear that God will not live up to his promises. That's what we're actually afraid of. We're either afraid that God will not protect us from whatever danger we're facing, or we're afraid that God hasn't guaranteed us the thing we're afraid of losing, right? Sometimes we're afraid of investing money in things because we're afraid that God may not have actually guaranteed that we get to have that amount in our bank account, so he may not give it back, you know? Those are the fears that we have. We're afraid of what it'll, we're afraid of how we might get hurt, and we're afraid that God won't protect us, or we're afraid that God may not actually guarantee that we get all the things that we want to have. But what you need to remember is that fear does not come from God. It is a lie. Now, again, I'm not, I mean, when, if you're standing on a cliff and you're afraid of jumping over, that fear is the truth. You trust it. You can't fly, okay? But what I'm talking about is the fear that keeps us from neighboring. The Holy Spirit is never going to say to you, yeah, don't risk loving those people. The Holy Spirit never says that. The Holy Spirit never says, eh, not this time, that, that might not go well, so maybe you should just abandon that person or leave that person. Or... So often it is fear that holds us back. I'm, I'm going to mention in a second, uh, I'm going to tell you about a, an event that I'm a part of called the Unity Project 
that happens next door at the convention grounds. And the point of the Unity Project is to encourage Christians to um, take seriously the command to love each other and to, um, to actually create communities of godly love. As a, um, and, and I've actually heard from people the concern that we're spending time talking about unity that we should be spending talking about evangelism because we need to make sure that the attendance in heaven is as high as it possibly can be. And, and what I find is that often as Christians, we get pulled into this fear-based evangelism where we're afraid of losing a culture war. And so we would rather just increase the numbers as much as we can without focusing on what it means to bring someone to Christ and what we're actually inviting people into. And it's, it's easy for us to become a church that has nothing, no gospel really to offer people because we don't actually love each other. And we've given up obedience to Jesus for the sake of winning a culture war. We're afraid, hey, if, if I do what Jesus told me to do, then we might, we might lose the culture war. Well, that is never from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never gives you permission to cut corners on the design of God for his people. Right? He never gives you permission. He never encourages you to set aside his commands. Because God guarantees that when we follow his design, that his plan will be fulfilled. My plan might not get fulfilled, but God's plan will get fulfilled. Paul writes that the spirit, of God, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. It doesn't make us timid. Now, I'm not going to tell you that you, you shouldn't feel fear. It is normal to fear, fear, feel fear because we are finite human beings, we are flesh and blood human beings, and we are flawed human beings who are being perfected. So you're going to feel fear. But notice he says it doesn't make us timid, it gives us power and self-discipline. So what do we need to do to love our neighbors? Self-discipline is the key. What that means is I feel the fear, but I'm not going to act on the fear. In my family, well, with Casey and I, we talk, call that disengaging the clutch. I can't stop the motor from going, but I can disconnect it from the wheels. Disengage the clutch. Don't act on the fear. Instead, we act on trust. Loving your neighbor means restraining your fear and acting on trust, acting on the promise, acting on the belief that God will keep his word, that as we do things his way and as we build his kingdom, he will guarantee that his plan will be fulfilled. This is a radical way of living, but it is the only way that loving your neighbor actually makes sense. It is the only way the math works out. This is why the world can never really accomplish this. This is why you need Jesus, because without God behind this plan, cutting the checks, the math doesn't work out. This is foolish if you don't believe that God is behind it and drawing people to himself. But knowing that God is behind this and he is drawing people to himself all of a sudden, all the math works out, and we would be foolish not to be a part of it. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful that you are active in this world, that you have a plan and you have not given us up to the meager things that we as human beings can accomplish, that you work through us, you, you send your spirit among us, you... You work things according to your will so that we as humanity can be drawn to you. We can go back to being the people you made us to be who love each other, who care for each other, who invest in each other. 
You work among your people within your church to make us a community that can share your love with those around us. And we thank you for that. And we ask that you would instill in each of us a desire to be a part of your mission, a desire to live every day boldly, trusting that your promises can be, will be fulfilled. Help us to identify that fear in our life as a lie. Help us to remember to disengage the clutch. Help us be able to use that self-discipline not to act on the fear, but instead to act on trust. Father, we can't do this without you. So we pray most of all for more of you, to know you better, to love you more. Father, we, we pray that you would act through this congregation, through your people in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Turner Christian Church, we believe that a fully functioning disciple of Jesus is connected with God and his church, growing in faith and love, and serving their community and world. And so as we move into our final song, I want to encourage each of you to consider where the next step is for you in that journey.